a CDI podcast. The heat is on across the U.S. By the middle of this week, more than two-thirds of the country will be fleeing the oppressive temperatures. We turn back now to the deadly wildfires in Hawaii. At least 55 people have been killed in the fires, and that number is expected this morning, to keep rising. As new videos show the inferno that engulfed Lahaina and how residents spent hours in the ocean to survive, anger is growing. How did the nation's deadliest wildfire happen with no warning? And in Montana today, a landmark court decision, a judge siding with a group of young people who accused the state of violating their rights by supporting fossil fuels. That President Biden and I are taking on one of the most urgent issues of our time. And of course, that is the climate crisis. What we're trying to say is that climate change and democracy are flip sides of the same coin. The fact that we have a climate problem owes to the fact that our democracy was corrupted by oil and corporate money way back when. That first warning to a U.S. president, that was 1965. You do the math. I mean, that's over a half century ago. So the connection is intimate and reciprocal. You can't, we're not going to make it through this juggernaut, through this uh, gauntlet, uh, unless we fix democracy. But fixing democracy is not minor changes here and there. It's John Lewis, Bernie Nagin, Jerry Mann, and all of that stuff. But then it's another leap forward as we redefine that word we. Who is we in this? And it's got to include future generations of the life forms and so forth and so on. That was David Orr talking about fixing what has been called the largest problem we face, the climate crisis and its 1.2 billion climate refugees, mass migration, lack of water, fatal wildfires, and killer storms. He's talking about our decades-long approach to a fix that hasn't worked at all. And David knows why. Fixing the climate crisis means rethinking and fixing democracy as it exists today. The, the intimate and reciprocal relationship is not clear, most for the most part, in the public dialogue. Climate change is an issue over here. Oh, that's something over there. Well, we'll fix that with the existing machinery. Can't be done. you got to fix that machinery, and you got to rethink it and reinvent what democracy is. And that, that generally means, and it's historically meant, expanding that we, the people, you know, so you, you begin to include, but once you include more people, then you have to also think about uh, climate change is, as Naomi Klein puts it, an everything issue. It's also uh, an everywhere issue, and it's an everyone issue. And so you have to begin to rethink, how do we redo all those, the, the ways in which we do the public business? The issues here are basic tenets of democracy. It's the power given to corporations, the intermixing of elections and money, and the power of lobbies. It gets into the tenets of law and of faith. It's the fact that our democracy allows for the interest of things other than people. People like you and I. People with constraints, with ethics, and limited lifespans. Mothers, fathers, families. And instead allows for business and economy to take control. The struggles we're facing here really hit close home for me. Balancing the demand of being a mother of two wonderful children, juggling a full-time college career, and holding down not one, but two jobs. I know all too well the feeling of constantly being constrained. But let's talk about something that's been on my mind lately. People who have limitations, who are bound by ethics, and who live within the confines of our all-too-short lifespans. I'm talking about mothers, fathers, families, folks who are just trying to make things work. Yet somehow the reins seem to slip away from us, and it's the realm of business and the economy that take the lead. 
so as I rush through my days, always striving to make ends meet and be there for my children, I can't help but wonder if the shortcuts I take are inadvertently adding to the climate crisis and what part I am truly playing. It's a bigger picture that often feels overwhelming. But understanding these complexities is the first step towards making a difference, not just for us, but for the generations that will come after us. Corporations are not people. Corporations are just abstractions, piles of money looking for the highest rate of return. So we've got to rethink the role, how we provision ourselves and the legal structure around that and do that in a way that works on a planet where the effects are long term. We cannot anticipate the effects of a lot of stuff we did. Uh, we didn't know about climate change when the, uh, you know, your great granddaddy bought his first car. Nobody talked about climate change then. Well, now we know. And now we know how large it is and how fast it's coming. It's going to affect everything. David Orr is a voice that's making waves in democratic reform and environmental consciousness. You might be wondering, who is David Orr? Well, picture this. He's like that insightful friend who doesn't just dish out the problems over coffee. He's the one who slides in with a double shot of wisdom and serves up some darn good solutions on the side. A respected professor, advisor, advocate, and author. He's written eight books, one of which is Democracy Unchained. I organized a book that had uh, oh, 39 authors. Uh, it came out, it's called Democracy Unchained. And that came out in 2020. We planned to follow that with uh, 14 events across the country, starting at the National Cathedral mm -hmm. uh, in uh, Washington. Democracy Unchained introduces the concept of Democracy 4.0, a groundbreaking idea to mend American democracy by addressing long-standing governance issues, which you will hear more about later in the podcast. But before we crank up the heat, let me introduce myself. My name is Portia Cook. I am a Colorado native, a mountain lover, a senior at Colorado State University studying journalism and media communications, and, as I mentioned, a mama of two awesome little humans. Welcome to the Heat Waves of Change. I am your host. Today, we will journey into David's world and into a scorching topic, looking at climate change and its reciprocal relationship with democracy. Now, you must be thinking, what on earth do the two have in common? Let me put it this way. Democracy and humanity itself isn't going to survive climate change if it is allowed to go too far. It is, as they call it, an existential issue. But you can't solve climate change without fixing democracy first. Because it's an everyone, everywhere, all the time issue. It involves everyone on the planet, some more than others, some sooner, some later. So you got to repair democracy. But the repair of democracy would include everything that's in John Lewis' uh, voting rights bill, but then lots more. Democracy, the right to vote, is the most powerful nonviolent tool we have. Many people march and protested for the right to vote. Some gave a little blood, and others lost their lives. Some of you have heard me say that the right to vote is precious, almost sacred. In my hearts of hearts, I believe that we should make it simple and convenient for all of our citizens to be part of the democratic process. I've got four grandchildren. Now we have to worry about my grandchildren, their grandchildren, and so forth. And you, when you if and when you have children, you're going to have to worry about the same thing. We now need to think about extending rights to future generations and other species and landforms. So we're calling that Democracy 4.0. It's a rethinking of democracy. David's talking about the fact that democracy must be considered a work in progress, just like the flip phones progressed into iPhones. 
democracy must be improved to take into account life now, today as we know it, and the generations ahead, our future, and those in it, even the creatures and natural marvels that inhabit our planet. It's simply saying what we have now means an increasingly hotter and inhospitable planet, and fixing that means a complete reimagining of democracy that aims for a more environmentally conscious, equitable, and inclusive future. But like all things, Democracy 4.0 didn't just pop out of nowhere. Like everything else, it had its beginnings. When Democracy 3.0 went from being a vague idea to being written into a constitution, there were committees of correspondence. Thomas Jefferson was writing. James Madison was thinking about politics. Thomas Paine, who came over from England, began to write some of the best pamphlets ever written about politics. So there was a dialogue going. And rather than me say, well, here's what it's going to be and give you bullet points, one, two, three, four, five, I would say, let's start with process. Whose ideas should be uh, factored into this? So that process should include mechanisms to begin to pull people together around a common vision for the future. And I would say only that we want that future to be powered by sunshine. Not, not combustion, but that future to be fair and equitable. So we have to understand how what we do affects people, the quality of people's lives. And that has a big bearing on who gets to sit at the table and make these decisions. We want it to be beautiful. We want a world that isn't just, uh, oh, grim, and oh, my God, I'm living in my little solar-powered box here, and life is so awful. No, we want parks. We want clean water. We want forests. We want seashores. We want all the things that we can have. But now we have to readjust our behavior politically to get to that, that viewpoint. So in, in terms of whether, say, we, we shift from a, a, a former government to a parliamentary form, or all those technical details, my, my response is, let's come together and reason together. Let's talk about our common future. Let's create forums where this becomes the idea. In an ever-changing world where relationships between citizens and their elected representatives often seems distant, the emergence of Democracy 4.0 raises a fundamental question. How can this help mend the disconnect between political decision makers and the people? The constituency that will build Democracy 4.0 is already there. And think about this. It's all those people that want to breathe clean air, drink clean water, prefer a stable climate, like beautiful forests, like rivers like to have a say in, in our common future, like to be treated with dignity, like to see a law enforced uniformly throughout a society. But we're already a majority. We're a big majority worldwide. The question is, how do we come together into a mighty surge to build democracy 4.0? It ain't going to be a few guys in a, in a you know, building in Philadelphia that's going to do it this time. That may be the final write-up of it, but it's going to be people coming together. This, in turn, is the idea of a cohesive effort aimed at realizing Democracy 4.0 is already in play. However, how exactly does this transformation manifest? It's going to be people coming together. And then the question is, how do you come together, whether it's at uh, the global scale, uh, dealing with war and peace and nuclear weapons, or at the Main Street scale? And my answer is, it's going to be both of those things. We can't be just consumers in this economy anymore. We're going to have to be active citizens. At the core of Democracy 4.0's approach is the principle of direct participation. Instead of relying solely on periodic elections and representative democracy, this model champions continuous and inclusive civic engagement. It aspires to create a culture of collaboration, where citizens are not merely passive observants, but active contributors to the political disclosure. Now, here's the problem. The majority sits on this side of the Grand Canyon, and there's a bridge across here. And the bridge is over here to the laws, rules, regulations by which we live. But the bridge has been made into a toll bridge. 
So Elon Musk, who has, what, $150 billion or some such wealth, he can get across the bridge. But you and I, unless you're billionaires, uh, you can't do that. And so we have to make that bridge that connects public opinion with public policy work again. So what we say and what we want matters. One of the mechanisms through which Democracy 4.0 aims to achieve success is by bridging the gap and fostering deliberative platforms. By involving citizens in deliberations, decision makers gain a deeper understanding of the collective aspirations and concerns resulting in policies that better reflect the need of the people. That is a political revolution. How do we get there? It's going to be the way everything's always happened. You have to organize. You have to get come together. We need coalitions. But if you look across the, the political landscape, the coalitions for a progressive world are already there. There are people, there's uh, William Barber fighting for you know, the Poor People's Campaign and his son down in North Carolina fighting for farmland. And uh, there are people fighting for on women's issues and get out the vote issues and fair pay issues. I mean, now we have to realize we've got to come together. David's words echo a call for collective action, emphasizing that our choices today shape the world of tomorrow, a world where democracy 4.0 thrives, fueled by the power of unity and shared values. And it's all because of what is taking place today. Human activity is producing five atomic bombs worth of heat every second. The heat we're putting in the biosphere is roughly equivalent to the heat given off by four Hiroshima-sized bombs, those are the bombs we, atomic bomb we dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. Every second, every minute, every hour, every day, all day long, or all year long. So that heat has been accumulating in the atmosphere, and it's slow enough that what comes out of our tailpipes, smokestacks, and engines, and so forth, is slow enough you don't see it on any given day. But then we're now at this tipping point where all of a sudden, my God, ocean temperatures are 101 degrees in Florida. you got to be kidding me. Melting of ice caps, fires in Siberia, the massive fire a couple years ago in uh, Australia, fires last year all the way up, up and down the, the West Coast of the United States. So th this is the new, quote, normal. Unless and until we do something dramatic, this is the coolest summer we'll have ever in your future. So the time for action is now. If this is the coolest version of summer we're getting, we might need a collective prayer circle, no matter your religion or spiritual practice. It may be time to rethink our entire approach to enjoying a summer beach trip in scorching weather. We're talking about a summer that's cranking up the heat to levels we've never seen before. I'm talking sizzling sidewalks, oceans turned hot tubs, and a blazing sun that'll make you question your life and flight choices. And our friend David might be onto something. Let me whisk you away to my recent summer escapades. We are going to pass through the cabin one last time to pick up all the remaining cups, cans, and glasses. If you could have a ready course as we pass by, we certainly would appreciate it. And I'd like to welcome all of you to Fort Lauderdale. Picture this, Miami, Pensacola, and Destin, Florida. Sounds like a tropical paradise, right? Well, let me tell you, paradise was packing some serious heat while I was out there in July. And I'm not talking about your run-of-the-mill, wears-my-son-hat-and-cold-drink kind of heat. This was a different heat. A heat wave that I can't ever really recall encountering in any childhood trips taken to this exact place. I'm not the only one feeling the burn in the Sunshine State, Florida. On July 13th, MSNBC reported on one of the many temperature surges in Florida's ocean waters. And let me tell you, when scientists start raising their eyebrow on a global scale, it is past time to start listening. Every day we show you some new climate data point that is crazier than the last. Well, here's today's edition. The water temperature off the coast of Florida yesterday spiked above 98 degrees. Ocean water, 98 degrees. 
David, listening to the MSNBC clip about the rise in water temperatures, how might this impact the overall travel experience for tourists and locals, not only for the remainder of this year, but going forward? Well, water temperature uh, portion is, is a symbol of lots of things going wrong. And the temperature this year in the ocean south of Miami, 40 miles out, was recorded at 101 degrees. But the, the maps uh, in the New York Times show uh, drastically higher, warmer temperatures, drastically faster melting in Antarctica than we've seen before. So the trends were there. Uh, they're simply accelerating, much as science predicted. We didn't know where the tipping point was, but this looks a lot like a tipping point toward a future where we, we just really don't want to go. As far as experiences in Miami, uh, my recommendation is to have them as fast as you can before Miami goes underwater because sea level rise is going to flood a good bit of South Florida. Whether Florida's ocean temperature shattered global records or not, hitting the high 90s to 100 degree mark is like an emergency flare signaling us to pay attention. And we're not alone in this heat wave extravaganza. All over the map, temperature records are getting smashed like a piñata at a summer party. And unfortunately, this is just a sizzling preview of what's to come. Experts have weighed in and dropped their own bombs on us. The blistering temperatures we're witnessing in the southwest United States, the sun-kissed corners of southern Europe, and even the fiery heart of northern Mexico would have been virtually impossible without human-caused climate change knocking at the door. Now let's talk oceans for a minute. Those mighty absorbers. They've been like nature superheroes, gobbling up about 90% of the extra heat we've been dishing out with our fossil fuels and forest mayhem. But that's not really so good. When ocean temps hit the roof, the corals can't handle the heat. It's like a coral spot day gone wrong. They end up kicking out the algae that keeps them going. We call it bleaching. So this whole climate thing, it's not just a beach read. It's a blockbuster with ocean temperatures and a whole lot of heat wave drama. Florida is now seeing bleaching of coral reefs and coral formations south of Miami and throughout the Caribbean generally. But we're seeing that also in the South Pacific around the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. And we're seeing also the effects of hotter temperatures on the ability of species to live where they have historically lived. So lobsters are moving north, fish not seen in the North Atlantic have been spotted there. So there's a drastic reshuffling of ocean biota as temperatures warm. And so the, the theory that you could turn the thermostat of the Earth up, but nothing else wobbles, isn't true. So once you introduce a hotter temperature, then everything changes. Humans behave differently in hotter temperatures. Recording yesterday in the Phoenix paper, one woman had a thermostat in her bedroom at night was still 100 degrees at night. That's not oceans, but it, this is a global phenomenon. So it's not just confined to oceans. It, it's everywhere. The oceans, however, are particularly important because of the heat we've introduced into the biosphere. Over 90% of that does go into the oceans, which covers 70% of the surface of the Earth. In a world brimming with intricate connections, where nature's patterns stretch far beyond the horizon, David's phrase, it's not just oceans, this is a global phenomenon, resonates like a whisper carried on in the wind, hinting at the vastness of an intricate tapestry roven across the planet. You see, this phenomenon isn't confined to a specific corner of the Earth. It's an echo reverberating through every nook and cranny, a phenomenon that knows no borders. It's a thread that binds us all, transcending geographic boundaries and cultural divides. It's as if the heartbeat of our planet sinks in unison, responding to the changes that ripple across its surface that we all play a part in. As you find yourself in different landscapes, whether the seashore or amidst other natural wonders, you become witness too. 
You're privy to a story much larger than yourself, a tale of interconnectedness that binds every living being. It's a reminder that we are all a part of this intricate narrative, where nature's whispers are carried by winds etching stories upon the canvas of our world. The question then lies in how we plan to turn what looks and is predicted to be a miserable ending to a new narrative, displaying a heroic story that centers around informed, environmentally conscious, and politically conscious citizens and the efforts we make to mitigate the effect of the climate crisis through improving our democracy. We have to realize we've got to come together. And we've come together in the past that typically has been done around a symbolic leader. Not always, I guess, but somehow we need people to bring us together to articulate that vision. But it, it's like none other because th this, this is existential stuff. We either get it right quickly or things are going to fall apart. But if we get it right quickly, there is still time to build a world that is beautiful, fair, just, and decent. That's not a pipe dream. That's something we can do. That's all for this episode of Heat Waves of Change. My name is Portia Cook, and I want to thank you for joining us in the fight against the climate crisis while we work to make democracy stronger. This is only the first step, and it's really important that we lend a helping hand to make sure our planet has a clean and green future. We can all rise to this challenge and start making environmentally friendly choices today, getting involved with our local politicians and doing our best to bring meaningful change. In the meantime, supporting local climate nonprofits, starting eco-friendly projects, and taking action yourself to mitigate the effects of the climate crisis, you can make a difference. More people are becoming concerned about the future of our planet and the state of our democracy each and every day. That is why it is so important that we all use our voice and exercise our right to vote. Your voice matters. And by casting your vote, you have the power to actively shape climate policies and elect leaders who truly care about ending the climate crisis. To register to vote, go to vote.gov and join us as we help create a greener, more equal world. If what was said today inspired you to directly support the Climate Democracy Initiative, you can visit the links in the description where you can find more info about our cause and even send in donations. Until next time, stay safe and remember, the clock is ticking and the future of our planet and the state of its democracy lies in our hands. 